Welcome to our Oasis service. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. That's where we're going to be spending a bit of time tonight. And uh, as you're turning there, you know, one of the uh, questions that, Sean, you and I encounter on a semi-regular basis on uh, A Reason for Hope, our Bible question and answer program, has to do with whether there is such a thing as free choice and free will. You know, has God just predestined everything? Do we really have a decision to make uh, regarding our relationship with God? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that, yes, we do have a choice regarding our relationship with God and that that choice really matters. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, we read this, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Wow. Well, that sounds an awful lot like a choice that God calls each and every one of us to make. In fact, if we're really honest about it, if you take a step back and you think about where you are today in this life, where we are, for lack of a better term, could be accurately described as the sum total of all the little choices we have made down the line to say yes or no to a relationship with God. And where we are, the consequences we experience in this life flow out of that choice, that decision to say yes or no to walking hand in hand with the Lord each and every day. As we approach Revelation chapter 6, we're going to see just how real and just how powerful our spiritual choices are really going to become. If you've been with us over the last few weeks in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, boy, we got a beautiful picture of what the reality of heaven is all about. It was wonderful to be able to sing uh, that, uh, that beautiful song uh, about worship in heaven and what it's like to experience that and what John uh, was shown, uh, the, the beautiful picture of God sitting on a throne, reflecting his glory like a jasper and a sardius stone, uh, a rainbow around the throne and uh, the sevenfold lampstand representing the Holy Spirit there, the four living creatures worshiping the Lord continually. And, and then as we got into chapter 5, we saw the center of attention come on the scene. Who was that? That was the seven-eyed, seven-horned lamb who was identified as the one who was slain for the sins of the world. And also in reference to the book of Zechariah, the one because of that sacrifice was worthy to take the scroll that was, as we discussed last week, essentially the uh, bill that's due to this world as far as judgment. He alone has the right to take that authority and to enact it. And of course, Jesus is the one identified as such. John sees the fact that no one was worthy to open the scroll. No one is righteous, no, not one, as the Apostle Paul also observed, quoting the Old Testament. Yeah, no one could uh, make this uh, world gone wrong right again. Yeah, he couldn't pay the bill so that we could all walk out happy. We'd either be washing ditches in the back like Pee Wee Herman or something else from another movie, which I can't recognize right now. But the point is made around that idea that there needs to be a payment made. And the only one who has made that payment 
John should have known more than anybody. The elder, one of the individuals who was, not your nickname, but the individual that was speaking to John said, look, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, two animals, and yet both characteristic of this unique creature. Now, obviously, the characteristics were symbolic, but they were references to the book of Daniel and, of course, directly explained in the chapter itself as representing the Holy Spirit and, as well, his absolute power. So, noting these traits of Jesus and this picture of the Lamb, going forward, we have terms defined for us, as well as worship that identifies Jesus as God the same way as the Father is, or, sorry, the one sitting on the throne. Yeah. But... Yeah, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing uh, is the song that is sung in heaven by this amazing uh, chorus of angels and the living creatures and the elders and uh, the spirits of just men already made perfect as the book of Hebrews describes the heavenly Mount Zion as being. Uh, You know, I just loved that statement about the worthiness of the lamb. The word lamb there is uh, what's called a diminutive it literally means like a little lammy. Uh, you know, it wasn't just a, a bold-looking, you know, ram that would uh, butt its way uh, into uh, into the scene. You, you see that Jesus truly is meek and humble in heart. He's the one who gives us rest for our souls. But, but I love uh, the fact that we see this beautiful description that he is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And you know, it was interesting. Uh, there was a, a question that was asked us on our radio program, A Reason for Hope. person wondering, you know, well, how do we really know that God is good? You know, how do we know that we haven't just been sold this bill of goods? And it seems like that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You know, has God really said? Is he really just holding out on you? But uh, the thing that I think is so powerful, and this is something the Lord has just been writing upon my heart, is when I'm rejoicing in my walk with God, when I'm flat out clueless and trials come my way. I love coming back to this because when we begin just to allow this beautiful truth of the attributes of Jesus to sink into our hearts, to say, you know, Lord, you are worthy to receive. You are powerful. You are the one that has the power necessary to solve any kind of struggle that I'm going through riches. You are a generous God. Wisdom. You always know the right thing to do. You have strength. What you start, you always finish. You are honorable. You do all things well. You are glorious. The very representation of the unseen Father we see in Jesus and blessing, that idea of supremely happy and joyful. Oh boy, by the time I get to that word blessing there, my perspective's changed. You know, and so I, I would highly recommend if you're feeling a little down or a little disrupted about life, or maybe you've been taking in too much of the internet and the news and <laughs> you just feel pretty disgusted, uh, get your eyes back on heaven by going through this. So the Lamb is introduced, and then we are told that he is given this seven sealed scroll written on the inside and out. Uh, you know, a picture, some believe, of the title deed of the earth, the debt that the earth was put into hock, if you will, uh, when mankind fell. And now, in a sense, the uh, repossession of planet earth begins. Now, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1, I saw 
when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Now, Sean, this is a really interesting setup here. Could you go into some details about how this leads into chapter 6? Absolutely. When we're obviously reading any section of Scripture, as our friend Levi Lusco says, we don't just want to jump in like we own the place. We want to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. What's the setup? Where are we? Who's being spoken to? What's being spoken about? And what's the significance of it? And fortunately, for most of these, if you've been following along with us verse by verse, or you at least started the book at the beginning, you can get most of the answers to these questions right away. Firstly, the when is after these things. Categorically, the book of Revelation has now transitioned the things that were, the things which are, and the things that must take place after, after this these things, yeah. began in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and we haven't been given any clue in the text that that's changed. So we're looking ahead to a future event. This isn't happening now. Whatever the Lamb's going to be doing with these seals, the letter isn't being opened as we speak. It will be in the future, but as we currently stand, this is a prophecy. This is what will take place after. Now, now that the when has been clarified, it's also important to note that that when isn't just any old time, but is also a time of God's wrath, that the impact of these seals, at least to a point, and we'll clarify why we believe all of the seals are God's wrath in a moment, but in the chapter itself, it notes, and this is, we'll skip ahead, I don't think we'll get to this verse today, but uh, <laughs> verse 16 of chapter 6 says, And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits in the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the chapter literally ends with the denotion, this is not only a time ahead, but a time of God's wrath. If you're in a time of God's wrath, you're probably not ahead, you're in present. But note that is the setting. And it's really important for us to, to file that away in our understanding because as many of you probably know, there's a huge debate that uh, rages even in Bible-believing Christian circles about whether we as believers in Christ are going to go through this time known as the tribulation period. But here we see a really defining characteristic of it. It is a time of God's wrath. It isn't just, you know, this idea, well, you know, believers have suffered down through time and, you know, why should we get the get out of jail free card and individuals have been persecuted and so on. Yeah, persecution has been a reality for God's people. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation with a small t, but fear not for I've overcome the world. Uh, Paul said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution of one kind. Or the other, some very intensely in our situation, fairly lightly, but uh, persecution and opposition, nonetheless. But when the Bible speaks of this particular event we're exploring, it speaks of it as a time of wrath. Now, some people will say, "Well, why should we get out of God's wrath?" Well, if you're asking that question, or if you've been ever asked that question, I'm glad that you did. In uh, the book of First Thessalonians, chapter five. In verse 9, we are told, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. John Walford, uh, the uh, famous president of Dallas Theological Seminary, a great Bible scholar, his book on Revelation and on Daniel, I think are just must-readings if you really want to dig deep into all of this, points out that from the time of 
Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, where we hear the command come up here. Although the church is the intense focus of chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, from that time onward, the church as such, the word church does not occur again until Revelation chapter 22. And we are absolutely absent at this particular time. Why? Because this is a time of God's wrath. Jesus bore God's wrath for us when he died on the cross once and for all. This is not something that God intends for us as church-age believers to go through. So really important for us to grasp this, that this is that time this is the of wrath. But noting then the where, you mentioned Revelation 4 and verse 1. It begins this section of the things that will take place after this. Also the who and the why. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now note, that's not just referring to the sky. That's not the the cosmic universe around us. It's the place where God directly manifests his glory. That term for heaven. And noting the dramatic entrance... It says, I heard a voice like ones of a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set where? In heaven and one sat on the throne. So we have a position clarified that this uh, series of visions that John's being given, specifically John or Revelation chapter six that we're being told, the one who was told, come up here and I will show you, John is observing these things in heaven, but also noting their impact on the earth. And we'll note that in the text as well, yeah. that the events of the, the consequence, I guess, of the seals impact the earth, but the breaking of the seals take place in heaven, and that's what John's observing. That's why a lot of these things are symbols, not uh, geopolitical landscapes being altered. Right. He's observing this from heaven to the earth. Also note the why. Uh, and uh, note, for those of you taking notes, the references regarding the earth are in Revelation chapter 6, just for this chapter, verses 4, 8, 10, 11, and 13. Yeah, the so word earth is emphasized there. That yeah. The impact of these yeah. plagues are those on the earth. This isn't some uh, you know vague spiritual warfare, despite what some people would want to insist. Uh, continuing on with the why, the purpose of Revelation is to, and I quote, reveal the Antichrist. No. Uh, Tim LaHaye's book career. No, well, although it probably did, but... Another failure by (laughs) Nicolas Cage in acting. (laughs) No. (laughs) Stepped on some shoes there. No, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The verse that opens revelation is the title, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it, this is the who, by his servant, or by... Uh, by his angel, to his servant, John. So John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, not John the car mechanic, the one who bore witness to, the last surviving apostle and witness of his resurrection. So this is a guy who's qualified to not only know what Jesus was like from firsthand experience, but in the book of Revelation, he's bearing witness to these things as a reliable source. Now, um, we mentioned them briefly. We'll reiterate just for the sake of clarity. Significant figures that will be mentioned in this chapter, the cherubim, or the four living creatures as they're referred to. Uh, They have other appearances in Ezekiel chapter 1, if you'd like cross-references, but they're the ones who are largely speaking to John at this time. You can note them in Revelation chapter 4. 
The Lamb, which is opening the seals, is Jesus. The one witnessing these things is the Apostle John. The scroll, noting that, is the judgment due to the earth. The rest are all explained within this chapter. So we got our uh, table of contents, our, right. uh, our little yeah, our foundation. List. Our foundation has been set, and it says, when I, Now uh, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. In other words, here we see another aspect of Revelation. Uh, it is just that. It is an unveiling. It is a uh, revelation, if you will, as to what God's plans are. And in this case, it is how God is going to right this world gone wrong. I think that's probably the best catch-all we could have as to what we're going to be see going forward throughout the book of Revelation until the time of the new heavens and the new earth. And for cross-referencing regarding the scroll written on both sides, look in the book of Zechariah regarding the flying scroll. It gives the same explanation. Yeah. So we see one of the four living creatures saying in the voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, here we come into one of the first big debates. There are those who will say, that this is a picture of Jesus because, again, he's riding a white horse. They will say in Revelation 19, he's riding a, a white horse. Uh, he has a crown. We are told in Revelation chapter 19 that he's wearing many crowns. And so, so it's uh, this picture of Jesus, and he is going out to bring in the kingdom of God. Sure but it looks like what's it. the problem with that? Well, there's appearances and then there's realities because the scary thing about a counterfeit is they try to look as close to the original as possible. My belief, and I believe it's shared, and there are reasons for this, is that the first plague of the tribulation is the rise of the Antichrist and the famous four horsemen. The first manifestation of God's wrath is the Antichrist coming on the scene. Now, it's not going to seem like wrath. No. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, I think a likely scenario is the rapture of the church is going to take place. Millions of people are suddenly going to vanish. The earth's going to be in chaos, economic disorder. And this fellow is going to rise on the scene, who's going to bring order out of the chaos and do such a wonderful job of it that for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, uh, things are going to seem great. Yeah. Never better. He'll be perceived as a savior, which undoubtedly Jesus also is. But when we read Revelation 19 and note the white horse that our Lord will come on, he will also appear as if he is that coming Messiah. He'll be perceived as such, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is. Likewise, he's also given a bow. Now, that's not a reference ahead to the book of Revelation. I believe it's a reference back to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Interesting scripture. Yeah, yeah. and verses 8 through 9, where it describes in very uh, uh, epic, believe it or not, uh, Shigianoth is meant to be exciting or inspiring music this was set to, describing God coming in chariots of salvation, and in the context of prophecy says, your bow was made quite ready, and you swore oaths over your arrows. Some translations note your nations or your tribes. But noting this prophetic context of a bow being someone coming to save, well, what's the Antichrist going to be perceived as? Based on the white horse, he'll look like the Messiah. And the Jewish nation is undoubtedly set up for that as well. In the bow, we see an act of salvation in referencing Old Testament scriptures. And then there's the crown, not that he had enough of his own authority, but one that was given to him. Now, 
In examining the Antichrist's rise to power, we want to make sure we have more information, not less. And interestingly enough, in the book of Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 9, which we'll mention briefly, chapter 11 in particular gives us a very interesting description on this cruel king of the north. And in many ways, he does mirror the historical figure, uh, descendant of the Greek general Ptolemy, who took over his section of the... Antiochus Epiphany. Yeah, and he, of course, was a real peach. But uh, when it comes to his rise to power, Daniel gives us an interesting description that doesn't actually fall too much in line with Antiochus, but it does make a reference to a potential future leader. Let me read it. In verse 21 of Daniel 11, it says... In his place, that is the king that was deposed before him, shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now that's an interesting term. His conquest, for sure, he'll gain control of these territories, but intrigue, like intriguing, through his skillfulness, his craftiness of mind. Now continuing on, it says... With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. For he shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans, so he's not acting yet, his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So this temporary rise to power will largely be done behind a veil, behind the scenes. He'll be described as a vile person, a crafty person, a deceitful person, but a successful person. And it's interesting, he's described as having a bow, mm-hmm. but no arrows. Right. Which, In other words, he is going to seize power, uh, not by just sheer military might, but by diplomatic manipulation. Small number of people of intrigue. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the most fascinating thing about this is that when we see the first seal broken, if you will, the first horseman, if you will, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first thing we see is a world ruler who isn't coming to seemingly ruin the world or to abuse the world, but to bring peace and security to the world. Now, fascinating statement that Jesus makes foreshadowing this is found in the Gospel of John chapter 5 and verse 41. He said, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, very interesting foreshadowing of the fact that when the world says no to God's promised Messiah, it isn't that they aren't saying no to everything. They're saying yes to something else. You know, if you don't want to have a spiritual deliverer, you know, if you are like uh, we talked about in the Gospel of Luke, those individuals say, we will not have this man be king over us. You can choose your king. And if you don't want God's appointed Messiah, there is going to come a day when you're going to get everything you've always wanted in a Messiah and less. He's going to look good. He is going to bring stability and peace, economic prosperity to this world. 
but only for a time, we're told in Daniel. And his time's going to run out. And uh, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period are literally going to be hell on earth because of what this fellow was going to do. He went out conquering and to conquer literally without firing a shot. Now, another detail of this that I call to your attention before we move on to the second horseman of the apocalypse, if you will. You've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see these four individuals coming on the scene, all involved uh, with riding horses, if you will. The fascinating thing about all of this is all of these are introduced by who? By the Lamb. No. All four are introduced when one of the living creatures before the throne says, come and see. We hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? These manifestations of God's wrath that are going to come on the earth. And that's what we tend to focus in on. But it's fascinating when you compare and contrast the four living creatures before the throne with these four plague bearers, if you will, that are going to come on the scene. You can have the glories of heaven. You can have God's truth being relayed by these awesome angelic creatures. And you can join in on that by saying yes to a relationship with God. But if you say no to that relationship with God, you're going to be dealing with four other critters that you may not really appreciate quite so much. So it's very interesting that these four living creatures and how interesting that there is this fourfold benediction there in Revelation chapter 5. I heard them saying, this is in verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne into the Lamb forever and ever. Here you have a fourfold declaration of the glory of God. In Revelation 6, we open with a fourfold declaration of what you get if you reject the glory of God. And the parallels are really significant. Notice it says blessing. We talked about how that word literally means happiness based on relationships. Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. To your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You reject the blessing of a relationship with the true and living God. What do you get? Not nothing. You get something. You get not the true Messiah. You get the false Messiah coming on the scene. Second plague. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Now, we talked about the Antichrist being this great bringer of peace. What's happened here? Well, essentially, the bill's coming due because in the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're told that the coming of this lawless one will only be permitted if the one who restrains is taken away. Now, we see in this world an inkling of just how eager and willing people are to be deceived, to not only be passionate in verifiably false facts, but also in the pursuit, the enforcement, and the veneration of these false facts. And when we see even these small foreshadowings of the fallenness of man, 
things that have been echoed throughout history, the rise of Islam and the embracing of the of systematic oppression of non-Muslims worldwide, even to this day, socialism, the Holocaust, neo-Nazis, anything that you want to name, sure. anything that you're going to qualify as a manifestation of man's fallenness, you haven't seen anything yet because those sparks, and we're going to see that manifested with numbers here in a minute, are nothing compared to what will happen when the one who restrains this evil is taken away. That when you hand yourself over to a false king, a one, one who can't change hearts and minds, but can certainly make circumstances seem like they're better. And isn't that the key? When the Antichrist comes on the scene, you know, we believe the first three and a half years is a general picture of the tribulation period. We're told in passages like Daniel chapter 9, at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist double-crosses Israel, and then peace is taken from the earth. Well, there's, there's a reason for that. The kind of peace that politicians promise us and that the Antichrist is going to be the absolute over-the-top example of is the kind of peace that is like a boiling pot with a heavy lid on the top of it. The fire's still going. You know, you got the heavy lid. It seems to the outside world, everything's going along fine, but pretty soon the pressure builds up and then, bam, the whole thing explodes. Why can't the Antichrist bring peace to the earth for more than three and a half years? Well, where does the real battle exist? James chapter 4 and verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, who wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why will the Antichrist peace program not work? Because, and you'd think we'd learn this lesson by now, but we don't. You can bring in the most wonderful, prosperous, politically balanced system that the world has ever known. Everybody's always been pursuing this kind of utopia. And we live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. The, the world has never known prosperity like we experience it today. Man, I want to tell you, you know, in Israel, you go on a tour and you, you know, one of the, the fascinating things was being able to see the uh, palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. They've excavated this thing and he had, you know, indoor heated plumbing and, you know, these wonderful mosaic floors and all this other stuff. But you look at it and this was where the richest of the rich dwelt. But compared to what we experience today, the luxuries that we take for granted, Caiaphas uh, was basically living in the hood. Uh, we live in an unprecedented time of prosperity, and yet no one's happy. Why? Because unless you've got peace in your heart with God, you'll never find it in your bank account. You'll never find it in your circumstances. You'll never find it in the house you live in, the car you drive. It, the only way you find peace in this world is when the real war, the war between us as fallen sinful human beings, and God comes to an end. Which and, is, and so we see the Antichrist successfully coming on the scene through intrigue, setting up 
his worldwide dominating system, but then what happens? Well, essentially, you're shown exactly who is and ain't your constituency. Yeah. The interesting word as well used for the great sword that was given to him, as well as the authority to take peace in the earth. No, that's not something inherent from the plague itself. The individual that is spiritually and symbolically described as on this red horse takes peace from the earth. The authority was given to him. It's not his it was given to him, but it was also given to him a great sword. And I think that's an insight, and I note uh, our next week's study in the fifth seal may reflect this as well. The sword that he was given is what was called in Greek a makarius. Now, my Greek may be worse than my English, but you can correct me. This is a form of a sword, a type of sword that's usually used in Scripture to refer to as a picture or a symbol of not political conflict, not military engagements, because obviously the Antichrist has got to make his PR stunt right. We haven't reached the three-and-a-half-year mark by a long shot. But the peace that's taken from the earth is within. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus used this term Macarius to describe something interesting. He said, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's the same word. For I have come to set a politician against another nation? No, a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, we don't have to use too much of our imagination to note domestic violence isn't reported as warfare or a violation of peace, but when you see mass rioting and looting caused simply by either misinformation or not even any information at all, just an opportunity, I believe, stuff. Yeah, I believe that this open opportunity that will be given will be taking place within the hearts of people worldwide, that there will be no need to restrain yourself anymore, that this lawlessness will abound in ways that we haven't even seen yet. And what's also interesting is Paul also clarified this as something we don't need to fear, and it belabors the point. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 37, he also uses the word makarius, peril or sword, not the things that we should fear, for we are more than conquerors in Christ. Not to fear persecution, not to fear the physical threats around us, even from our neighbors. And he also references this in 2 Corinthians. But continuing on with this point, this removal of peace from the earth isn't a political one, not yet. Peace has been established on the news, but, which undoubtedly will still be functioning after the rapture, but noting that point in the hearts and minds of people, the one who restrains Second Thessalonians 2, that will be gone. Yeah. And it will be demonstrated worldwide. And also note, uh, that's not just going to cause a lot of lack of trust from your neighbor, but also a lack of trust in your bank book. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 5, we read, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales, literally measurements, in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, so this isn't from the creatures, it's among them, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that's enough to make a wheat loaf, and three quarts of barley, lesser material for making bread, for a denarius. And a denarius, for those of you who know your gospel accounts, that's a coin that was the equivalent of a day's pay. Right. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Those are luxuries. So what's interesting about this one, and I tried to find common parallels because an explanation's not given as the significance, the only other reference I could find in a prophetic context, referencing bread and weighing it out, is actually found in a passage you might have seen at the grocery store. 
Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Yeah, Ezekiel bread. Yeah, the famous You, you really bread. don't want to read Ezekiel 4 and buy some Ezekiel bread, trust me. But let me read the passage. <laughs> this reference to the bread that he'd be preparing is uh, less than savory. Said, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. They shall drink water by measure and with dread. They may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away of their iniquity. The context of this is the siege of Jerusalem that would be enacted by Babylon. And as you know, in siege warfare, as I'm sure all of you do, when you're cut off from the trains bringing in restocks at Costco, the food runs out real quick. And when you don't have food, you don't eat. And when you don't eat, you get hangry. You get nervous, (laughs) you get sparse or careful with the kind of food or the amount of food that you're able to eat. Obviously, the reference to the luxury items is saying there's not going to be much of this, but it will be there. Just leave it alone. The people who will be eating for a day's wage, not much. One decent meal or three inferior meals. Yeah, and and, and here we see not just a picture of uh, economic deprivation. In other words, people are going to have to work an entire day to, to basically buy a loaf of bread. Uh, but this is not going to be completely pervasive. The people that are people of means, people of wealth, aren't going to have their lifestyles interrupted. Not as much. And uh, they will still have the oil and the wine available to them. The average grunt on the street, not so much. But the people that are uh, well-placed and well-connected are not going to have a problem not just getting bread, but as we mentioned, luxury items like oil and wine. It's not only going to be a time of economic want, it's also going to be a time of economic inequality and injustice. Now, very interesting. People sign up for the Antichrist program because they think he's going to bring peace and prosperity. Well, for a time he will, And then the economic bottom is going to fall out here, which sets the stage for verse 7. It says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. This is not Clint Eastwood, by the way, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. Nor is this a reference to the movie Tombstone. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, very interesting, a quarter of the world. How many people does that amount to? Well, last time the number was estimated, and we can verify this by the United States Census Bureau, the International Trade Database, and a few other sources, just shy at this time, pre-rapture, of 2 billion people. Well, 8 billion on planet Earth. uh, I'm ahead of myself for the number of the... And so a quarter (laughs) of that 8 billion are going to get wiped out in this particular plague. Two billion, with a B, people are going to go down. Nine zeros. Now, for perspective on that, let's just note that whether you're wearing a red bandana or not, I had to shoo it in there, the sick horse is going to get you. In World Wars I and II combined, both military and civilian casualties, the Holocaust included into this mix and number, we saw 20 million people dead, which is 1% yeah. of that number. Yeah. 
If you want to up the ante a little bit, since the time of Karl Marx to the modern day, the amount of deaths that were taken from socialism and communism are about 5% or 100. But if we're asking the question of the loss of life as a result of, and I count, the sword, the civil unrest and lack of peace on the earth, the violence, both domestic and foreign. And we have place. seen even in our day and age, that's nothing to, uh, to sniff at. Billions of dollars in damage, but even with the uh, quote-unquote summer of love, as the news reported it, we saw dozens of people dead, not billions. Right. But noting this point, the lack of peace on the earth, the consequences of that with hunger, the consequences of that economic disparity, and, of course, the widespreadness of this plague, even involving animals. Well, it says, with death and the beasts of the earth. The word beast there is the Greek word zoe. It can not just mean like lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It can mean any kind of biological critter that's running around out there. And if we've seen anything over these last couple of years, if anybody had told me or you four years ago uh, the pathway that we have gone down because of the pandemic and the debate about the origin of uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus, whether it was engineered in a lab or not, I'll leave more intelligent uh, medical minds and epidemiologists to debate. But can you imagine what would happen if we saw something that looked, made COVID look like a walk in the park? Well, no, something that equivalent. Made, what creature brought the Black Plague on Europe? It wasn't uh, bears. It was please. yeah, well, bugs. Yeah, yeah. That's why the Black Plague spread the way that it, it did. Why did the Spanish flu ravage the United States in the time between World Wars One and Two? It was called the bird flu. So note that this widespread case of death around the world amounting to a loss of life more than anything we've ever seen in history. And this, by the way, is a warm-up. Yeah, we haven't even we're, started we're, yet. As the book of Revelation goes on, we're going to see swaths of humanity taken out as a result of these plagues. So the, the best way, I think, for us to sum up this first part of these sealed judgments the things I really want you to take away from this is notice that every one of these sealed judgments is announced by one of the four living creatures that we find in the book of Revelation chapter 4. The four living creatures, and again, the word creature there, again, it, it talks about uh, this zoe, this idea of, of these creations of God. Their entire purpose is to reflect God's beautiful attributes. And if you choose, as we saw in Deuteronomy, life to love the Lord your God, then you're going to approach God and along with these living creatures give glory to him. But if you say no to God, you say no to him personally. No, I don't like this Jesus. I want my own Messiah. I don't want someone who's going to forgive my sins. I just want someone who's going to make me um, healthy, wealthy, and, well, we could throw out wise. You decide you don't want Jesus, you've chosen an alternative. You've chosen the false Messiah that Jesus warned about. When you, we say, you know, uh, okay, God, I want to experience your uh, provision within my life. Well, we say no to God's provision 
God has promised he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. We go, no, no, I think I'm going to go in for greed. Well, you've chosen something. And guess what? You know, some people are going to prosper greedily during these times. They're going to have the oil and the wine, but most people are going to suffer tremendously. When we say to God, you know, Jesus, you said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Yeah, well, the spiritual peace, that's all well and good. I just want peace uh, politically, you know, peace in our time. You can choose that, but you're choosing something less than what God can give to you. And, And finally, when we say no to God's offer of life, you haven't chosen nothing. You've chosen something. You've chosen death. You know, and it is such an important thing for us to understand because this is probably one, uh, the answer to one of the most challenging questions that we get on our broadcast. If God loves us, why is there a hell? Why did God create a hell in the first place? I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once said that hell is God's great compliment to the reality and dignity of human free will and free choice. If you don't want to live forever with God, you don't have to live forever with God. C.S. Lewis said this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. The damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. What's going to make the tribulation period so bad? It's going to be what people have always wanted. God, just leave me alone and let me work it out myself. God will say, have at it. But even during this time, he's going to continue to reach out to each and every person who will turn to him. And the reason we just don't see God going for the jugular just blowing up planet Earth and starting over is because every one of these plagues and judgments is designed to do what? Point people to what they rejected and to what they're living without. So noting this point, when we're asking, okay, what would make these four first seals? There's no mention of wrath yet. No, we haven't gotten to the end of the chapter, which we saw coming. But note this point. If the wrath is not identified as such here, who's the source of that sixth seal judgment? The lamb. Who's the source of the first four? The lamb. If the source is the same, if the cause is the same, then what's the motive? Well, let's note a contrast, as every single Jewish leader and teacher has ever done since the beginning of time. When I ask about the white horse, I see someone who looks good, someone with a temporary crown, But let's compare that to Jesus, because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Compare him. How long will Jesus' crown last? Forever and ever. Let's verify. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, 
and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even seven years? No, forever. The red horse, taking peace from the earth. What will Jesus coming to this world be described as? This is Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth... Conflict, peace, and goodwill toward men. The black horse, instead of his promise to fail to build back better, what's Jesus' kingdom? Some of you got that. Isaiah sixty-five thirteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. And finally, the pale horse. The Antichrist's rise will end more lives in his, in his coming than any counterfeit Savior before him. What does Jesus offer? John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Lord, we're so grateful that your word gives us such an amazing heads up. And not just uh, for the events that are soon to come upon the earth, but Lord, as well, uh, even the events that are happening around us, these, these previews, these, these uh, tremors, if you will, that show us that this great earthquake, the, the great taking back of earth from the rule and, uh, and dominance of the wicked one and those who follow him, Lord, we see it in the offing. And Lord, we do pray that we would not just look at these things and say, boy, I'm glad I'm in and these other people are out. May this be a motivation for us during this time of grace, during this time when we wait for that voice that will say, come up here and we'll be in your presence and enjoying heavenly glory together. Uh, allow us to be able to redouble our efforts to reach out with the love and the life of Jesus in his name and for his sake. Amen.